Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're launching a series of shows from the venue of the National Congress of American Indians. We are in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The year is 2019. And our first guest sitting across from me is Jerry Sweet. He's the president and CEO of an organization called One Family Services in Indian Country. Jerry, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Jerry, you and I had a brief opportunity to talk, get a little bit acquainted before doing the broadcast uh, here together, and you immediately developed rapport with me as well as got my interest in your story. We have roots uh, not far from each other. I lived in Ardmore, Oklahoma for many years. You have roots in Ada, right? That's correct. So not all that far apart there in south-central Oklahoma. But I was just fascinated by the background in which you grew up. Paint a picture for your growing up years there in Oklahoma. Well, you know, I had a very good life in Oklahoma. I have 19 brothers and sisters. You have 19 siblings. 19 siblings. 19 siblings. And my baby sister is probably 50. Oh, I won't say how old she is. She may, she may listen to this and get mad at me. But okay. anyway, I'm, uh, uh, there's 19 of us. Or 20. There were 20 of us. Wow. We, we lost one brother. Mm. So, so 19 of us. And we lived in a one-bedroom house in Alon, Oklahoma. You live, so, I mean, just the, the logistics of this are challenging me a bit. One bedroom. One bedroom. 20 kids right. and one or two parents or more? Two parents. Well, uh, Dad was married uh, and had five children before uh-huh. he met my mother. Okay. My mother had two children before she met my dad. Uh-huh. And so... All total, living in that one house at one time, there were 14 of us. Wow. So how, how was that? You know, it was great. We, uh, we often get together. We're a very close family. Uh-huh. We still get together, and we, we relive our memories of sleeping outside, of chasing you know, uh, butterflies or, or lightning bugs, uh-huh. and all the th- games that we made up and, and had fun doing. Uh, we, we lived on bologna sandwiches and... Whatever dad cooked up or mom cooked up at the time. Wow. So you have this uh, family experience, this life history. You growing up felt you were, you were blessed. We were blessed. We were blessed. My, you know, my, my siblings and I still discuss, even though we were dirt poor, we didn't know it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We thought we were the richest people around because we had this family that just bonded. That's tremendous. And, and the good thing is that, the, our neighbors had 13 children, <laughs> and so we we just always had fun. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. it's, a, it's a great time. So this is a, an amazing story. I, I say it's amazing because I grew up uh, in the circles I was in. I mean, our family was, was quote, pretty big. I mean, I had four siblings, but <laughs> uh, this is uh, remarkable for me. And yet today... You have not gotten really all that far away from your family roots because you're trying to help tribes today have better systems in place to care for their tribal members, especially the families. Am I understanding that right? You're absolutely correct. My focus with my company when I started it was to help children and the elderly, the two most forgotten groups, in my opinion, mm-hmm. out there. 
we see a lot of children that are doing without. Mm-hmm. And so I helped develop the very first child support program for Indian tribes back in 1996. Okay. And uh, worked on the group that wrote the federal regs that now allow tribes to develop and operate their own programs. Mm-hmm. And then for the TANF, we also worked with TANF mm-hmm. to help those families that cannot or do not have the means mm-hmm. to have some kind of stability and help mm-hmm. them get off the, uh, basically what we called back in the day, the welfare road. Okay. And help them become self-sufficient to take care of themselves. So how did you get on that journey? Did you start in, in social work, social services? What was your background? You know, it's funny how I got started. I uh, went back to school. I uh-huh. went through a divorce and, and moved to Tucson, Arizona. Okay. Went back to school to become a, uh, a legal assistant. My plan was to go on to law school. Uh-huh. But after I, I got out of my program for legal assistance, the county attorney in Tucson hired me to do a uh, just work in a, a family assistant program, mm-hmm. which became known as child sport. Okay. And so that's how I got involved in child sport. It was, it was by pure accident. And then in 1996, the governor of Chicksaw Nation asked me to come back and develop a program for Chicksaw Nation, mm. which brought me back home. So I went full circle to come back to help children of my, of my families and other uh, members of the city of Chickasaw Nation, which led us into helping. We put together a consortium of tribes, and which led us to help in every tribal nation in Oklahoma through wow. our consortium. So you're a, a tribal member of the Chickasaw Nation. I am. And you've been working, at least historically, you started by working not only with your nation, but also with other nations in Oklahoma. That's correct. But right now, you actually have started your own is it a consulting company? Is that the it, best way to describe it? It is. The best way I describe it, it's a consulting firm. And basically what I do is help any tribe across the country that, that needs help developing social service programs, be it child support, TANF, child welfare, or representative payee. And representative payee is my newest project where that uh, a lot of the elderly were being taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And even though the social security was coming to them, mm-hmm. it was being taken by their family members. Okay. And so we have become a fiduciary to help those folks to ensure that the money that comes into them stays with them. Uh-huh. And uh, so we got certified through the Social Security Administration and the IRS to do these things. So let me understand how this works because this is a new concept for me. Yep. It's not a new concept that elderly people are taken advantage right. of as far as their finances, right. even by their own family members. Right. But would you set something up as an independent agency? Would a tribe contract with you? Would you set something up at a tribal level? How does that work? It, it works in a tribal level. Uh, basically, what happened is the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians contacted me, and we have already had a, an agreement with them to do their child support and TANF okay. for them, and, and a couple other little things, enrollment. Mm-hmm. And, and they so they had said, hey, we're getting our elderly are being taken advantage of. Can you help us develop something? And so I met with my team of workers, and we put together this representative payee. Mm-hmm. And so the tribe basically pays us to operate these programs for their tribal citizens. And it's a it's for those individuals. And we started with one case, okay, one family, one one uh, elderly person. Uh-huh. And it, we now have 34. And this has been a two-year project. Wow. And it, it just keeps growing. Uh-huh. And, and you don't realize a need until you're actually working into it. Mm-hmm. And it's something that has captured all of that. My folks uh, just captured all of it and said, you know, we need to do better at this. Mm-hmm. So those elderly that were 
family members were taking their money and doing other things with right, it. Right, right. Now we control that, and and we have we're basically become their fiduciary. We make sure they're we'll make sure that person is being taken care of. So if I were to envision how this works, let's say you, you mentioned the example Eastern Band of you know the Cherokees. Uh, Someone there would say, we want to work with you in developing this program. You would likely hire a tribal member. That's correct. And that individual would then be the, the contact person for the tribe, and you'd let people know. If you feel like there's an elderly person who's being taken advantage of, contact this individual. Am I understanding how the process the, might work? Correct, correct. Basically what happens is the tribes have a program, adult service program. Okay. And so they contact and refer them over to us. Okay. And so it becomes a referral. And now the courts have said, hey, we want to be part of this as well. Because a lot of people may not come through the tribal program. Mm-hmm. They'll come to the courts. Okay. And so the courts have asked us to help them basically develop the same thing. Okay. And work with them. And so they will be referred to us by the court system. So we'll have two referrals, either by family safety uh-huh. or by the court. Okay. And then basically what ends up happening is... Funds from Social Security or from a military pension or something come to your organization, and then you work with the individual, the beneficiary, to to deal with those funds on a monthly basis? Or that, how to, that's correct. So basically what we do is, is once everybody comes in, we interview them to see what their, their needs are. Mm-hmm. Then we will open up a, a bank account with their name on it okay, and then our name on it. And so they can't draw money without our signature. We can't okay. draw money without theirs. Okay. And so, but they're they're the only ones that can. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sibling can't, or their sibling or their child or, cannot come to us and say, "Hey, Grandma needs money. I want to take this out." It doesn't work that way. Grandma has to come to us and say, "Hey, I, I need this." But we also buy their help them with their grocery shopping. Uh-huh. So we have a lot that cannot get out of the home to go grocery shopping, mm-hmm. and so my folks will go grocery shopping for them. Uh, if they need clothing, uh-huh. they will say, okay, uh, you know, I've looked at this on the Internet. Can you go get this at Walmart for us? And okay. so this is what my folks do. We have bought even those motorized scooters really? for individuals because they need them. Uh-huh. So we, we look and see what they need, assess them, and, and help them. But we do not take over everything. They they have complete mm-hmm. say-so to us, which which makes it – they do, they do not lose their independence. It, the reason, If I can share the reasoning behind yeah, that. Yeah. My mother, before she passed away, told me, she said, I want to keep my independence. I know I'm dying, but I, I want to have my independence. Mm-hmm. You know, if we would have taken that away from my mother, and that's why I see every, every one of these folks are either my mom or my dad. That's why I see them. Mm-hmm. And that's why we do what we do is to help them. That's tremendous. So it's personal. Everything I do is personal. I see a personal connection. So, so Jerry, if, um, if someone's just tuning in with us, I am talking to Jerry Sweet. He's the president and CEO of One Family Services in Indian Country. And if you're wondering about the background, yes, we are in the exhibit hall here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But we're really speaking about something that I feel, like Jerry mentioned earlier in this interview, often slips off the radar screen. Often our seniors, as much as they're valued in Indian Country, uh, tribal elders uh, held in high esteem, but often things fall through the cracks. Yes. Family members may not be all that uh, well-intentioned. They may have their own problems, issues, uh, where they're actually tapping into an elderly parent's, uh, basically, funds that they need to live, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. So 
as I'm listening to the scenario you're painting, yes, I can see where there's protection there. You're talking about maintaining autonomy and independence. And I'm thinking, well, boy, this still sounds like it's pretty restricting because someone else is is holding the, the checkbook, if you will, in addition to me. What is the feedback you get from the individuals, from the tribal elders that are in this uh, this program? You know, most of the feedback we have gotten back from them, and we have 34 clients that we help now, most of them have come to us and appreciate because they they still have a say-so mm-hmm. on, on how their money is spent. Mm-hmm. And it's not just going out mm-hmm. and, you know, being used for things that, you know, the money is supposed to be for them, not for right, every, right. everybody else. So they're appreciating because before they couldn't buy the clothes or they yeah. couldn't get the groceries because family members were diverting those funds. You're absolutely right. There were so many families that were sitting there eating things that I don't want to discuss okay. because they had to eat. Yeah. And so what we do is make sure that we have, a, a, you know, we buy just for that family, mm-hmm. for that person. Mm-hmm. And so they have the food now to eat. And we check on them. You know, it's not like something that, oh, okay, we're just going to take care of you. No, we, we take care of you. We step out and make sure you're okay. Tremendous. We check on them all the time. Tremendous. Jerry, it sounds like you're doing such a great work. I know there's a lot of people tuning into the show. They're probably saying, wow. How can I tap into this? How can I get resources? Do you actually provide resources as well as consultation? We do. And and I would be happy to meet with tribal council and discuss how we, you know, how we have developed the programs for Eastern Band and how it's working for them. And I believe Eastern Band will is our biggest joy. And they, they will say, always say, hey, whatever you need from us, you got it because you, you've been helping us out. And, and we help not only their elderly, but their children. Uh-huh. You know, so it's it's been a uh, and, and another thing we've done at Easter Bannon is we restricted the double dipping. Uh, okay. So you got to I know a lot of wisdom that we could tap into. If someone wants to go to a website, is there one place that you would direct them? There, there is. They can go to one f s i c dot com and our or one family services in Indian Country and. Our information is on there. Okay, so and our let, contact information. So let me see if I've got this straight. So basically, it's the number one, and then fsic.com. That's correct. Okay, that was Jerry Sweet. You can get more information by going directly to his website. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living, and uh, we encourage you to stay by because we've got a lot more great guests that are coming up right after this. Don't go away. More on American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical. 
medical unit. Respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We're in the convention center here with many people who are making a huge difference in Indian country. Across from me is one of those individuals, Renee Bork. Renee, it is great to have you with us. It is great to be here. Thank you. Renee, folks who are regular listeners to American Indian Living are already acquainted with the organization that you represent. You're the program manager with the National Center for Victims of Crime, and you folks have been working with something called the Tribal Resource Tool. It's been featured on American Indian Living, but we featured it just as something that was out there. It was about to be released, I believe, when we did an interview a little while ago. Tell us about your organization and about this very important resource. Um, I am excited to talk about the Tribal Resource Tool. This is an OVC uh, Vision 21 funded initiative, and I believe they began the program in 2016. I've only been with the center since 2018, uh, February, or 2019, February, sorry. And we actually went live with the map in January. And what this is, it is a collaborative partnership with the National Center of Victims of Crime, the National Congress of American Indians, the Tribal Law and Policy Institute, and a new partner, um, Strong Hearts Native Helpline, has just recently joined. And it's an online-based resource mapping tool for Native American and Alaska Native um, victims of crime and survivors. It is um, basically it's an online phone book we're hoping to uh, develop and build as we go along resources for victims all across the country for our Native American victims and survivors. Um, A lot of resources out there are generally affiliated with just domestic and sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And this tool is going to encompass all crimes, um, all violent crime from homicide, DUI, fatality, human trafficking, and domestic and sexual violence, child abuse, past and present, um, and underlying crimes related to those. 
So let me see if I understand this, Renee. There's a lot of folks tuning in today. They're listening to the program. And many of us, in many ways, have been victims, whether it's a crime that's uh, been prosecuted, whether it's something that was uh, kind of hushed up uh, at a family level or at a broader level. Folks understand what we're talking about. Why would someone, let's say, they were robbed. Maybe they were robbed at gunpoint uh, 10 years ago. Is this toolkit something for them, or are you saying, no, we're looking for people who had a recent experience that we can help right now? Help me out. So what we do know as service providers is trauma takes on many forms and many faces. Um, historical trauma, mm-hmm. as we all know too well in Indian country, um, affects us our entire life. So if somebody was victimized 10, 15 years ago, and they're looking for a resource to get help, we're hopeful that this tool may be a resource for them to be able to search for specific services that they might be looking for. So if somebody was a victim of robbery, and that is one of the crime service types uh, listed in the tool, we would be hopeful that once it's fully populated, um, a victim, family member, service provider could search for um, resources for a robbery victim in their, their, their area of need, mm. whether it be their respective tribal community reservation or urban um, setting, uh, wherever that individual might be able to access services. You know, one of the, the challenging things, and I was just having this discussion the other day with an individual. Uh, this particular person had, uh, well, actually was speaking with me about her mother who has Alzheimer's disease. Why I'm, I'm bringing this into the dialogue is because the discussion was generated because she felt that people, well, didn't understand what she was dealing with, uh, felt like... Um, let me just put it this way, that maybe it was her fault, her mother's fault, the family's fault, they hadn't taken better care of her. What I'm getting at is whether it's a health issue or whether you're a victim of a crime, we have this tendency, and this is what I was explaining to this individual, to blame victims. So many times there's a stigma, isn't there, when someone is a victim of a crime, they don't necessarily want to come forth because they're afraid if they share something, people are going to start pointing their fingers at them. Is that a real concern that you see? Absolutely, and especially in Indian country. Um, we, I think we're finally getting some recognition at the national level, especially with the MMIW movement, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Mm-hmm. There's no sense of urgency for Native victims, um, and victim shaming is all too common. Uh, and I think that's across the board with the criminal justice system. I do a lot of law enforcement training, and okay. I, I try to tell our communities that that's why it's called the criminal justice system and not the victim justice, justice system. Interesting. Um, because I think the, you know, it's not normal, normal in air quotes, to say, um, well, this happened to this person. We need to understand why. Instead, it's like, what did you do to cause this crime mm-hmm. to happen to you? Mm-hmm. And in Indian country, I think that's tenfold um, because of a lot of the other issues, underlying issues that we face in Indian country with the high poverty rates, our alcoholism and substance abuse issues, and just the historical trauma that a lot of our families have generationally are trying mm-hmm. to overcome. Now, one of the explanations that I've, I've sometimes uh, heard for this tendency is we're trying to protect ourselves. So if I can blame the victim, if I can say, well, you know, they probably didn't shut all their windows or they were wearing the wrong kind of clothes, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, I would never do those things. 
it makes the world safer for me. Do you think that's really a, a real dynamic that, that's kind of playing out often subconsciously for people? I do sometimes. I think people try to rationalize what they don't understand mm -hmm. to make it fit their world and their mold, which is why our Native victims have a more difficult time navigating services because not only do you have that stigma mm -hmm. um, of the victim blaming from just a societal you know, standpoint, but then you have the, well, it's a Native victim. It's a person of color. So I think that plays a factor, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that we do that as a society. Like you said, it's a, almost a defense mechanism mm -hmm. so that it fits your world. Because it doesn't fit our world to be on the offender side to rationalize why somebody could cause that type of harm to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about you, Renee, because people are always fascinated to say, why would someone be so invested in a, in a program like this? Do you have a, a personal story that kind of connected you with this type of work? Well, I've been in the field of victim services in Indian country for 16 years. Wow. Uh, so prior to this position, I um, was with the Bureau of Indian Affairs mm -hmm. uh, Victim Assistance Program. I was a federal victim specialist. Okay. So my first duty station was Pine Ridge Reservation. Wow. So I lived there and worked uh -huh. there for about three years um, and served, you know, victims of violent crime. Uh, which time I moved and served Standing Rock and Spirit Lake Nation um, and the three affiliated tribes, and along with some other reservations. I'm originally from Oklahoma. I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Mm -hmm. So I started my career as a tribal um, victims advocate and um, then became a certified sworn police officer. For, really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> for about five years and uh, finished my master's degree um, in Ada, Oklahoma at East Central. Give them a shout okay, out. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then I um, just went into some other things, still in the criminal justice system, but mm -hmm. this is just what I've always done. And I don't talk a lot about it. Uh, or in my 20s, um, I was married uh, and had two children and lived in an abusive marriage for wow, about 10 years. Wow. So yeah, that probably directed me to, you know, I think, I think this type of work is creator driven. Mm -hmm. And when I was able to uh, get divorced and get out of that abusive marriage, I went to work as a secretary for the Citizen Potawatomi Nation okay. in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and that uh -huh. started my, my career path of just trying to be a voice for, for Indian country and for Native victims. Tremendous. You're an inspiration. I mean, you have such wealth of experience. I mean, from having been there with people who you know are dealing with issues to actually having been in law enforcement to being in program management, so I'm excited about all that you bring to the table. Folks that are still trying to say, well, this sounds all interesting. I mean, Renee sounds like an amazing lady. What message would you like folks who are listening to this segment to take away? What do you want them to do as a result of what they've heard? I know that across Indian country, as far as victim service providers, as long as I've been doing this, one of the things, the key things that always comes back to every meeting, every training, every conference is networking, mm -hmm. that we need a network. and. We know that a lot of our programs are driven by federal dollars. Okay. And unfortunately, these programs come to fruition, they thrive, and then the money goes away. Mm -hmm. And we're just kind of at the federal government's mercy, if you will, mm -hmm. as far as trying to provide, you know, just basic services to our people. So hopefully, the message is hopefully this tool, uh, with the help of a lot of partners and a lot of networking, can be that that networking resource that's accessible because we know that today social media and, you know, the, just the click of a button, if it can get us there, 
I mean, we're one step further than we were a decade ago. Well, Renee, our time is quickly slipping away in this segment. But before we go away, someone wants to contribute to this. They feel they have resources in their community that they would like to share. Would they want to be part of this uh, movement as well? Absolutely. So what's the point of contact? So they can jump onto the website, which is tribalresourcetool.org. And there's a tab at the top that says provider inclusion. Okay. So they can get on that provider inclusion form and they can enter their own information. If they have problems with it, uh, there will be contact information in, in the tool. Or they can email me directly at yeah. um, rbork, it's B-O-U-R-Q-U-E, at victimsofcrime.org. Okay. So let me see if I got that. Okay. rbork, B-O-U-R-Q-U-E. Yes at victimsofcrime.org and the website tribalresourcetool.org. Yes. Okay. We've got to run. We're not going away. We're going to stay by for another segment of American Indian Living. A couple more coming up here from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Renee is stepping away to other duties here at the National Congress of American Indians. But don't go away. A lot more great material coming up from this very venue right after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose here from Albuquerque, New Mexico. We continue this series of, I'm really finding them uh, exciting, interviews from the venue of the National Congress of American Indians 2019 here in New Mexico. Across from me, another great guest, Angel Charlie. Angel, it is great to have you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, I have the good fortune of being right next to Angel and her team with the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. We're sharing booths side-by-side in the convention center. But I find, Angel, a lot of people, even in this venue, don't seem to have heard of your organization because I notice a lot of folks coming by and interacting with you. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Um, So we are a tribal coalition. There's 18 of us nationally. We serve tribes primarily based in New Mexico, a little bit of Southern Colorado. Mm -hmm. We work with Isleto del Sora in El Paso, but it's the 19 Pueblos, the two Apache nations, and Navajo Nation. Okay. Yes. So that is still a big swath of Indian country. There are a lot of uh, First Nation peoples that are in your service area, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And and we can't forget about um, the folks living in the cities, right? So mm-hmm. we have Farmington. We have Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. We have a team of about 11 individuals who are out in community as often as possible. So, I mean, it, it's definitely a, a catchy name for an organization, Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. And I don't think you probably have anyone coming by saying, well, this doesn't sound like a good cause, right? Right, right. But practically, what do you do that's making a difference? So we focus on four areas, and it kind of guides our work in the movement to end violence against Native women and children. Policy advocacy, technical assistance, training and education, and support. Okay. And so policy advocacy looks different um, in tribal communities. It looks different on the state level, and then it looks different on the national level. So an example of, of how we're working within our tribes in New Mexico is we will go out and work with tribal courts to develop the codes, right? So a lot of them don't have codes around domestic violence mm-hmm. or sexual assault. Um, that's an example of what it looks like on the tribal level. And then mm-hmm. on the state level, we really work to um, educate about the bills that come up every year. So okay. this past year, uh, we were really successful in supporting the tr- uh, firearm relinquishment law that just mm-hmm. went into effect June, July 1st. Um, and, then, and then on the national level, what we do is kind of engage community. We really push for civic engagement around VAWA, around um, FIPSA, around justice for survivors. Now that Deb's in office, she's introducing a lot of great legislation that really aims to protect Native women and children. And so um, we try to get involved with that as well. And then every um, February, March, we put on a tribal leader summit. And so in New Mexico, um, and I'm this isn't unique to Indian country whatsoever, but the turn with our tribal leaders is so quick, right? So in New Mexico, sometimes our governors are in office for one year. Okay. And so they are appointed to those positions more often than not because they're community leaders, they're spiritual leaders, and um, now they're heads of state, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've got to kind of figure out how to get these folks to be able to advocate for our tribal communities on a national mm-hmm. level. And so that's that's a little bit of what our policy advocacy looks okay. like is, is we're all over the place, wow, right? Wow. Um, and our, our technical assistance, that really looks different everywhere we are. Mm-hmm. So it is helping our member organizations start a newsletter. It's helping our member organizations on planning committees. It's showing up with Gatorade to a 5k run that might be going on somewhere. Um, and our training, all of our trainings are free. They're at no cost. So 
we are one of two organizations in the state that are certified to certify victim advocates. And we do our training. It's 40 hours long through a tribal lens. So it's, it's getting victim advocates ready to work with survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, um, really thinking about the issues that, that, uh, non-tribal survivors have to face, like jurisdiction, mm. like, lack of services in a rural area, mm-hmm. um, the dynamics of what domestic violence looks like there. So you have some interesting roles. Of course, right now you're serving as the interim executive director of the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. But I know for a number of years you were working in the area of membership, among other things. So when we talk about members of your organization, who are the members? And would somebody, perhaps as an individual, listening to today's show is this something, if they're in your service area, they could become a individual member, or is it just for tribes? Um, no, it's everyone, right? Everybody has a place in our organization. This, this is a collective movement, mm-hmm. and we need people to show up. So we have four tiers of membership. Okay. The first is kind of all-encompassing for everybody. We call it the relative member. If that's $50, it's an annual due. Uh-huh. And those are for folks who don't need our training, our technical assistance, who don't really, who want to be involved with the organization, who want to do something something, um, but don't necessarily need our services, mm-hmm. right? They just want to be involved with the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. And can anyone throughout the country be part of that? Anyone. Go to our website. You can um, go to become a member. It's on the top of the page. Scroll down. Gives you a little bit of information about every single tier. And yeah, we have supporters from Alaska. We have members. Um, we just had someone from Vermont sign up the okay. other day. So all over the country. So direct us, Angel, to your website. How do we get there? We are uh, www.cs V-A-N-W dot O-R-G. So just our acronym, Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. Okay, so if I can remember the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, just the initials, Coalition C, Stop S, Violence V, Against A, Native N, Women W. C-S-V-A-N-W, Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. And I can just remember .org, not .org. .com. Yeah, we don't make it easy. It's a long one, that's it for is, sure. It is, and that's why I took a little bit of time to go through it, because I know there's folks already, just based on what you're talking about, they're interested in learning about your organization. Maybe they're interested in becoming a member. But you said in addition to this kind of basic level of membership, there's these training activities that you're doing, who is that open to? Is that just open to individuals in New Mexico and in your service area? So it is open to our member, our membership base and by extension, everyone else, oh, right? Okay. So anybody can really kind of sign up and show up and, and learn about what we do. So we do, we have trainings around, um, sexual violence, um, foster care pipeline system into trafficking. We have uh, a native youth summit that we put on every year. We do, um, a, the tribal leader summit that I told you about. So it's for tribal leaders, but it's open to community mm-hmm. as well. Um, we do the 40 hour advocacy training that I was telling you about. We just held our second annual Southwest Butterflies Retreat, which is, um, a conversation for our LGBTQ2 spirit folks who are affected by violence, but are often left out of these conversations mm-hmm. when we're talking about, um, VAWA or FIPSA, all of these laws, right? That just aren't as inclusive as we need them to be. So let's speak to someone maybe listening today from out east. They're maybe with a larger tribe. 
some distance from New Mexico, and they're saying, this is an individual. Maybe they're not involved in tribal leadership, but they're saying, I have a personal concern about what I see happening in our tribe or what's happening in my community, or maybe they're in an urban setting, and uh, they say, I see Native people, Native women that are dealing with issues, and it seems like no one's there for them. No one's hearing their voice. Maybe they've talked with people at a tribal level, and there's support, but sometimes it's hard to connect all those dots. Are you encouraging people who just have an interest to say, look at our offerings, there might be some training here that would help you, or to really come to one of these trainings, there's got to be a level of commitment and maybe uh, a role in a community. It's not just for a, 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 a a lay person to come out and just say, I want to learn more and be more involved. So it depends on the training okay. and all of the information is on the website, right? So there are trainings that are directly um, beneficial to victim advocates. Okay. But like the Southwest butterflies retreat that I was uh-huh. just mentioning, that's open to community. It's open to youth. Um, okay. Then we have the tribal leader summit where that's aimed at um, administrations mm-hmm. and council, but, um, Social services needs to be there. Behavioral health, tribal social services, tribal behavioral health, those folks need to be there too. So it varies and it depends on the training. You are a very impassioned spokesperson for your organization, Angel. Is there something that has especially connected you with this type of work? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of us who come to this work have have lived experience Mm -hmm. in it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I grew up in a home that was affected by domestic violence, mm. right? I like to call my mom a cycle breaker and I'm a first generation cycle breaker. Tremendous, right? tremendous. So I have a daughter now who will never get a knock on what she won't see this. Uh-huh. She, she won't grow up in a, in a house like this. So Wonderful. I know exactly what it means to access these services. Uh-huh. I know the turnaround that can happen for a family um, and just the overall impact that it has, right? We're, we're breaking cycles. I think one of the exciting things to me as I interface with people in your in your sphere of, of work in Indian country is that because you bring that personal experience, I think sometimes it seems like as, well, maybe even more healing than some of the great things we're doing that our big programs seem so important is just that one-on-one. And I'm, I'm sure you get a lot of feedback from people who just appreciate so much what you and, and others in your work are doing in Indian country. Thank you for saying that. So yeah, we have a ha- we have a bunch of hashtags. When you come to the website, you'll see it for sure. But one of the hashtags that we use way more often than others is change the conversation, mm. right? Because folks aren't having conversations about domestic violence. It's something that we don't want to talk about. Um, but we have a very young team who's taking this issue on from a very social justice perspective. And when we're able to kind of change the conversation, change the narrative around what domestic violence looks like, we get people who want to be involved. Mm -hmm. And we plant those seeds and we hope that it carries, you know, our work carries on. Now, I guess one other question is we're thinking about who partners are, who members are, who can interface with your services. I mean, sometimes when there's women in the title, men think, well, this is for the ladies. How do you relate to that? Are you trying to draw more men into the organization or you say, we got plenty of men, we need more ladies to step up to the plate? What's your take on some of those gender differences? We absolutely need men in this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Our men need to be engaged. There is an intricate balance that, that we know as Native people, as Indigenous folks, that um, 
between men and women and, and, and there's an imbalance when, when violence occurs. And so in order to kind of create that shift and get back to harmony, we need our men to show up with us. Um, so we are looking to secure funding to hire, um, an engaging young men and boys mm. coordinator. Mm-hmm. So really to start to develop curriculum and programming and doing research about Excellent. ways to get um, our guys involved. Our, uh-huh. Nobody's disposable in our communities. We need everyone to show up for this issue. This is tremendous stuff that you're doing. So I know you got a tough website, but we want to <laughs> try to tackle it one more yeah. time. Someone wants to get more information. You're Angel Charlie. You're the interim executive director for the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. How does someone connect with you and your team? Come to our website. There is a little button on top that says contact us. You can sign up for our emails. You can um, sign up for our trainings. All of the information you need is right there at that csvanw.org. Okay. I just got to give this out one more time because it is it is, it is a bit challenging. csvanw.org. Yes. And for those of you that still can't get that coalition to stop violence against Native women or the initials or the website, go to the station that's airing this uh, show. They get information about my guests. You'll see contact information there as well, or they can give it to you. I'm Dr. DeRose. We've got more coming up in our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. More from the venue of National Congress of American Indians 2019 right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Stay tuned right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. 
Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. We continue to be recording in this exciting venue of the National Congress of American Indians in the Convention Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It is October of 2019, and across from me, my final guest is James Calabaza. Did I pronounce that last name right? Yes, you did, David. James, it is great to have you with us, and uh, you are the National Program Coordinator for Trees, Water, and People. I told you, honestly, when we first met that I'd never heard of your organization before, but it's not because you're a brand-new organization, is it? No, uh, we've been around, you know, 21 years in the game, supporting indigenous tribal communities and supporting them into like, how they could develop their economies and support people in a long-term well-being. So now, is it safe to say, though, that you personally did not start the organization, <laughs> even though you are the national program coordinator? Uh, no, uh, no, I did not. I was only a couple years old, probably still wearing some huggies or some pampers when this organization was started. But uh, I found Trees, Water, and People and made it like my home away from home this past year. You know, So I'm very fortunate to be part of this organization. It is great to have uh, a native young adult uh, like yourself in a position of leadership, working with an organization that's really... Uh, helping lots and lots of tribes. I've just been learning a bit about it from you prior to the interview. So tell our listeners, if they're like me, they've never heard of trees, water, and people before, right now, what would you like them to know about your organization? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, Trees, Water, and People, or TWP, as most people like to say, uh, we're a 21-year-old environmental conservation organization based out of Fort Collins, Colorado, founded by two foresters who saw the need and importance to really positively impact indigenous communities in the Americas, you know. And since then, we've never looked back. We've always taken every step forward in a positive way and looked for greater resources and support services to really help thrust our vision to... Um, to improve the tribal communities that we work with, you know. So we have two programs. We have an international program mm -hmm. that serves Central American countries, and then we also have our tribal program that serves uh, tribal communities here in the West. Wow. The, what, what's interesting to me is you mentioned the origins of your organization, two foresters. Were these native foresters? No, they were not. They were uh, two uh, Anglo-American uh, foresters working in Central America during the time in the late 90s, huh. uh, spe spe specifically in Guatemala, you know, and they, that's when they saw the need after they were trying to reforest uh, a forest there that had just been severely damaged by a wildfire in that area. And apparently, as you told me a little bit before the uh, the segment, one of the things that impressed them was it seemed like indigenous peoples often didn't have access to some of the governmental resources, whether it was in the U.S. or in uh, Central America, that other population segments seem to have access to. Is, is that a correct understanding of what they saw? Yes, of course. That's what they saw. You know, like they were uh, volunteering and working during that time with the Peace Corps. And even then, they saw that the need was greater than just the manpower. They needed to bring some type of economic stability hmm. and really uh, an initiative led by the, tri the local people there, you know. So that's where they saw that 
the that natural resources should be protected by the people living within these communities because they're the ones who know what's impacting them the mm -hmm. greatest, you know, if that's positively or negatively. So we listen in to these community members and find ways to get them resources and services so they can be the ones who produce these different development projects in their communities. So you are here at the National Congress of American Indians. You have a booth. I've seen your booth there. There's tribal leaders from all over the country here at NCAI. Is your target audience, especially people in tribal leadership, because you're trying to work with broader tribal initiatives, or are you trying to reach out to individuals as well? Our target audience is like just a general broad um, population, you know, like we like to really inform the population about our work that we've done on tribal communities you know like our tribal programs is roughly about 15 years old and mm -hmm. we're starting to improve the dynamics of it the structure the foundation and how we can really invest a lot of our support services into the southwest tribal communities and today here we're here today at the ncai to really inform the general public about how the importance of our program work is impacting tri tribal communities in new mexico so I just had a couple of Native friends come by the booth a few minutes ago, one from Oklahoma, another from the Dakotas. Pick a place like that. They're not in New Mexico, but let's take Oklahoma. What would you tell someone from Oklahoma who's listening to the show right now? Yeah. Why should they know more about trees, water, and people? What can it do for them? What can it do for their family, for their, their tribe? Yeah, so... What can really benefit a lot of tribal communities in Oklahoma and the people there is that, like, these programs are theirs. They're the ones running these programs, you know. We're just the ones listening and, like, really gathering what is the people are requesting or in need of. If that, in term, if that includes educational workshops, training protocols for adults, and just getting providing them some, some type of economic job opportunities to really boost their economies there locally in their tribal communities. And like I said, like they're the ones who are driving the vehicle. And as an organization like TWP, we're the ones who want to fill the tank for them because we find it very necessary that they're the ones who are getting impacted by the communities. We want to inform and really educate them about it. But it's their it's their land, it's their communities, and we just want to be part of it that ways that we can positively impact them. So what I'm trying to do, James, in my own mind and for our listeners, is just try to say, uh, where can I get involved? How can this help me specifically? So I've got some of these you know, general concepts, I think. But let's come to my friend from the Dakotas. And uh, she stopped by the booth, and, and I could have said, hey, meet James over there, because I know, hypothetically, let's say she had a concern, maybe there's uh, some tribal lands, and she's been saying, wow, there's a lot of downed wood here. This looks like a fire hazard. I mean... What, do you guys do things like that? Do you educate people? If the tribe reached out to you and said, uh, yeah, we'd love to have you do some training on forest management, is that part of your kind of domain of services? Oh, yeah, indeed. You know, like that's where the whole Trees, Water, People name came from because we do a lot of work on ecosystem rehabilitation okay. and then really improving people's lives through water quality and then the people engagement of it. So Trees, Water, and People is a holistic approach that we really like to encompass in our in the valley behind of our programs. Um, so the ways that they could get contact with us is like by contacting us directly, you know, like our website, our social media platforms, Trees, mm -hmm. Water, and People, uh, we really have a huge dynamic and diversity of people who like to share their stories of how they were positively impacted by our work. Oh, okay. And then just by contacting us, you know, like we'll go out of our way to get back to them and get 
get them resources and services that they can that they will need for their tribal communities. So the website is really easy to remember. It's just treeswaterpeople.org. I got that right. Huh? Yes, it is. So treeswaterpeople.org. And let's say someone goes there. They have an interest in the environment, trying to see what things they can do, what their tribe could do better. Maybe they're in tribal leadership. Are those the kind of people that reach out to you oftentimes? Actually, the mo- most of the time, the people that really do reach out to us are people who who do not have who do not hold any title or position. Okay. It's just a local leader that people really respect and value because they're they're the ones bringing the voice to them. You know, like um, so most of the time, like I said, it's just ordinary tribal people, community members who are the ones reaching out to us, trying to seek ways that our organization or our cohort of um, allies and supporters can really benefit their communities. Tell us a story or two that helps us see how powerful your organization is. Yeah, so actually this for the first time in our 21-year history, we have come to New Mexico this past August to do a reforestation project on wow. the Santa Domingo tribal lands. Okay. And me being from Santo Domingo Pueblo, like this was a really emotional time because uh-huh. I have always g- grown up to really think about how I could give back to my community. Mm-hmm. And this was something that I took, you know, I took, I had an idea, I planned for it, and then I put it into action with this organization. Wonderful. Um, we planted 10,000 Douglas fir trees wow. on the western side of the pub, tribal Pueblo lands. Uh-huh. And Douglas fir is a very culturally relevant tree that a lot of the Pueblos along the Rio Grande Valley use for cultural and traditional ceremonies. Mm. But because due to recent fires, droughts, and just the overuse of and over protection, under protection of tribal lands, this project was very specifically important to our community. You know, like we had volunteers from the local community who dedicated their time to come out wow that's tremendous so it sounds like a real successful project it was it was very beautiful you know we had the war chief and his staff come out do the blessings some prayers and really acknowledge the value behind our work and this doesn't just uh show for santa domingo pueblo it also shows for the communities up in pine ridge south dakota and shine river it really benefits a lot of tribal people throughout the nation tremendous James, thank you so much for what you and your organization is doing. Again, if someone wants to either contact you or your organization, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, visit us at our website at treeswaterpeople.org, or you could contact me directly at james at treeswaterpeople.org. That is my email, or cell phone at 505-280-2854, because I'm always on the road, but I would definitely get your message. Okay, let me see if I got that number, 505-280-2854. Correct, David. James, thanks so much for sharing. James Calabaza, National Program Coordinator for Trees, Water, and People. That's all for today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully you've learned some things that can help you individually, your family, your tribe, as a result of today's program. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.